0: Brothers Kartik and Guhabala spent 25 years turning the video game company they started in their parents' basement into one of the most successful studios in the industry, only to leave the company in 2016. Why would they do such a thing? We get the answer to that question on the latest episode of Retcond. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Retconned, a podcast of Assorted Geekery. I'm Rick Marshall. And I'm Patrick Garrett. And today we're talking video games and the people who make them. Specifically, one half of the sibling duo that founded Vicarious Visions Game Studio in New York's capital region. Cardick and Guha Bala created Vicarious Visions in 1990 while the pair were still in high school. Over the next 25 years, the studio made a name for itself working on adaptations of game franchises for portable systems like the Game Boy Advance and Nintendo DS, only to hit big with their work on the kid-friendly billion-dollar Skylanders franchise. The studio was purchased by game publisher Activision in 2005, and recent reports indicated that the studio's projects have accounted for more than $2.5
1: billion in sales so far. That's why it came as a bit of a surprise when Kartik and Guha announced in April of 2016 that they were leaving Vicarious Visions.
0: Since leaving Vicarious, the brothers founded Velen Studios, a new video game studio that aims to create, in their words, breakthrough experimental games and new kinds of experiences that push the frontier of gaming forward. They got things off to a good start by raising more than $7 million in venture capital for their startup studio and have an ambitious set of goals in mind for their new company a set of goals that includes fostering a game development hub in and around New York's capital region. We spoke to Kartik about the pair's reasons for leaving Vicarious, their plans for Valens Studios, and the past, present, and potential future of the video game industry. Thank you for joining us here today. You and your brother left Vicarious Visions, the company you created together in 2016. That's no small decision. Uh, you spent more than 25 years there building it into a company responsible for some of the biggest uh, game franchises in the industry. Past conversations I've had with you, you two have both sort of uh, talked about Vicarious sort of like proud parents. This was this was your kid. This was your baby. What prompted you to move on?
2: <laughs> uh, so, first of all, we're really glad to be here. Yeah, you know... Uh, so, Vicarious, you know, just as a little background. So, my brother and I started, uh, you know, Vicarious Visions when we were in high school. So, it was back in 1991, and I was 15, and he was 14. So, this is all we've kind of known. And, you know, Vivi's grown up with us, and, you know, we we built it, and I had an amazing team. After 25 years, last year, you know, we made the very painful decision to to leave. So, it was, that was a... Really difficult decision, you know, to to do that. But kid grows up, and and uh, kid's gonna be all right, you know.
0: <laughs> it certainly seems to be doing all right.
2: Yeah, you know, we're we are very proud uh, parents, I guess. Uh, you know, it's fun to think back on, on a lot of the accomplishments, and uh, it's also great to see, you know, VV do well, and you know, some of the some of the key folks there, they're doing a great job. So. You know, we're excited to see what, uh, you know, VV does and their contributions and stuff to the game scene here in the Capital Region.
0: Well, uh, a lot of the conversation surrounding uh, your new project, your new company, uh, Velen Studios, centers on a desire to explore experimental games. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what what does experimental mean to you? What makes a game experimental and catches your, your interest?
2: Yeah, you know, it's uh, the, the desire for that, you know, really came about, just looking at new kinds of ideas and new kinds of forms of interactive entertainment. I guess that, you know, we had some really interesting lessons over the years, you know, working on Guitar Hero and and Skylanders. You know, Guitar Hero was a really uh, interesting experience in that it was the first game that I worked on where we designed a new piece of hardware. And it was sort of this aha moment where we realized... Hey, we don't have to be beholden to the interface that was provided by a console manufacturer or PC. We could actually create our own interface with a game, thereby changing the experience and giving a new kind of feeling or emotional attachment or connection to the experience. And that continued to expand, and uh, you know, in a number of different ways, you know, including the work with, that we did on Skylanders, bringing you know toys to life, and how magical that was you know, for children and, and families and, and man children like myself, uh, you know, and playing with our action figures. And, uh, and so, you know, when we, uh, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, experimental games, it's like what kind of new ideas, you know, are there? You know, new forms of uh, interactivity that people haven't seen before, whether it's a new kind of play pattern, you know, that's, uh, that's software only that's accessible to, like, a mass audience, a new kind of play pattern that new people haven't seen before? Or, you know, is it a new kind of, you know, hardware software experience, you know, with new technologies? And, and the awesome thing is, like, tech these days is exploding in so many different directions, and there's so much stuff to explore that we wanted to kind of do sort of a hard reset and, uh, and essentially start over, you know, with a, with a clean slate, as daunting as that, you know, might seem to try and go pursue these new ideas, try and kind of create a like a sort of a true R&D kind of environment to try out new ideas and find the magic.
1: So you're saying beyond augmented reality or even virtual reality. You're saying like things we haven't even thought of, the new whatever.
2: Yeah, you know, it's 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 like new ideas, but it's also when you look at some of this emerging tech, you know, with VR or AR in particular, it's very nascent. So, there's uh, so much to explore, so much stuff that hasn't been defined. You know, we're we're doing some internal, uh, you know, R and D on augmented reality, working with new kind of optic lenses and other tech that, you know, hasn't hit the marketplace yet. And it changes the way you kind of uh, experience things. It creates a new set of problems that you have to solve. It kind of redefines what a pixel is. And, you know, at a very low level, and you're like rethinking art, and you're rethinking the experience, and you're creating a different kind of magic, you know, you have a different set of constraints that you're working, you know, with. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's super cool as a developer. But then when you kind of put these sort of pieces together in a in a non obvious way, and you present that to somebody, they don't, they don't care what the technology is, right? They, They care about the experience and their connection to it. And you're like, they look at it and they said wow i've never seen that before you know that's really magical to me how did you do that you know that's the kind of experience that we've had in the past with some of our big hits and you know what i do know is repeating what you did before is not the answer right you know it's it's like asking um, asking somebody tell me what's going to surprise you, <laughs> you know? and uh, and so you've got to surprise them with something magical and new
1: would you say that the internet has affected the business structure of indie video games.
2: Yeah, you know, it's this is another one of those things you know when we when we started back in the early 90s, I mean, this was like pre-CD-ROM, pretty much pre-internet and the indie scene was was really where where it was at, you know, the publishers were were growing it was you had electronic arts where they were a collection of electronic artists that was the that was the thesis of it you know retail was starting to to grow but a lot of the innovation was coming from the garage band startups and you look at like id software back in the day with with wolfenstein and the original doom stuff like that and and so that that was like a big indie movement in the early 90s and then as the games got bigger and you had a lot of Retail consolidation, and you had the big publishers consolidating and and buying, uh, you know, developers. To be able to work on the big impactful games, you had to focus on a fewer projects, became bigger teams, and it made sense for us as Vicarious to become part of a bigger company. You know, Activision was one of our customers, and they were a great partner, and it made sense. And that was back in 2005. Became part of Activision. And it was all about that retail consolidation and the big productions and the deep pockets you needed to be able to take the bets on on big titles. And it took a lot of money to build engine technology and all that kind of stuff. Now what do you see? You see this massive rebirth of indies because of middleware and access to knowledge that's online and tutorials and ways you can form virtual teams and lower your costs. There's all kinds of different ways you can be creative, and make games. And then distribution has fundamentally changed with digital and, uh, you know, Steam, uh, the app stores, all of that. So that's kind of brought about a rebirth. Now there's different challenges, right? There's just so much noise, so many games on Steam and the app store. How do you get noticed? How do you do something unique? It feels like a lottery, you know, if, you, uh, if you're if you successful. So there's different challenges with digital distribution and, and being an indie but you're also seeing further growth in these massive massive games the the big AAA side and there's room for both and we're seeing success in lots of different ways which is pretty cool
1: larger studios will often have massive teams that work on big you know blockbuster hits they work on some of the smallest intricacies of the game like the sound design in this one chapter is handled by this entire studio how at velen does like a smaller studio concentrate on making games, like a whole game, <laughs> comparatively?
2: You know, we've had to we've had to kind of retrain our brain a little bit because you know we started out making sort of smaller games or building large games with small teams. And relatively speaking, you know, back in the day, you know, when we would have when we'd work on uh, Game Boy Advance games, like when we did like Tony Hawk on Game Boy Advance and. I think that team was like eight people or, or nine people, something like that. Maybe even a little less. And we built all the technology and all that. And then the games, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you need hundreds of people to, to make a game. You know, and there are some games where there's more than 1,000 people, you know, working on a, on a single game. You know, kind of going back to our roots, going back indie and being scrappy about it, we've got to rethink, you know, what's, what we focus on. And uh, you can't compete in the same way. And that's why you got to do something different. You know, you can't, you know, if we're trying to make, let's say, a first person shooter with a small sort of startup team, that's a tough nut to crack because you're going up against games that have a thousand people on it. But you don't have to make that. You know, you go after something unique and the audience recognizes that. They don't say, hey, this doesn't this isn't as good looking as a uh, as a first person shooter. You know, they don't compare it the same way. And and I think that's true when you look at graphics and stuff. For a long time, it was kind of race for getting better graphics. And at this point, I don't think people really care. I mean, yeah, it's got to look good, but something is photorealistic and it's got all the detail and intricacies that works for that game. But then you can be super stylized and artistic in another way that costs a fraction of the money and you create a, a different kind of experience And you can do that with a smaller team.
1: The subjectivity of looking good is really up to the consumer. And that can just be anything from pixel art to, you know, the high quality of, like you said, photorealistic games.
2: Yeah, I mean, even like the retro stuff. I mean, you know, I I just got the uh, SNES Classic recently, and uh, I'm playing that with my daughter. And, you know, I thought one of her first reactions would be, Boy, the graphics suck. <laughs> you know, that's not it at all. That's not the the viewpoint. There's something charming uh, about the the, the retro uh, look and feel, and and she's into it. And even going back, I thought, well, maybe these games didn't age well, but you know, some of the classics they don't age. You it's know? a classic and for a reason. It's a, it's a classic for a reason, and and uh, you know, and they look they look good. They have their own sort of charm. So you can kind of. You know, find a look and feel that's uh, distinct, and I think that's the challenge that indies have. They, you know, it's there's so much noise. It's like you got to come up with an art style and a look and a some way to captivate in a unique way, and it really shows some of the maturity that's occurring within just gaming in general. When you compare it to other art forms and other media, like when you look at like movies and TV shows and stuff, you'll go see the big blockbusters. With the, with the big special effects and all that kind of stuff and the massive teams that it takes to kind of create them. And then you'll go watch, some, like, smaller films or you'll watch, like, TV shows. You're even watching, like, web shorts, you know, and stuff that's, uh, that's created by just a few people because there's something distinct that it offers. And for whatever reason, that all kind of fits within your life and you're not trying to make this qualitative judgment and comparison between them,
0: as long as it's good. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, switching gears a little bit, uh, you've made the the capital region of, of New York a real focus of your efforts in building uh, both these companies over the years. You've talked about how it was important for you and your brother to keep Vicarious Visions local, and that's been a recurring theme with uh, Valen. So, why? What is it about the capital region here, where we're not, you know, the Silicon Valley area, uh, you know, where a lot of uh, where a lot of video game companies go? Where we're we're not in Japan. Uh, so, what what is it about capital region of New York that's really uh, that's really making this an uh, attractive place to become? a uh, video game development hub? You know, I
2: I guess uh, the short answer is it's sort of become home. You know, I've lived uh, in a lot of different places in my life and lived here longer than anywhere else, and it has become home. And when we started Vicarious, it was in Rochester, New York, in my parents' basement (laughs) while we were in high school. And I came to RPI, you know, for my undergrad. And the reason I came was uh, RPI had its uh, incubator center. And that was mind-blowing to me when I first learned about the place, because here was a place where there are people within the community who want to help startups, you know, want to help people succeed, where they don't have a financial motivation behind it. They really want to mentor and, and, and help support. And that's what I found with this community. And at the time, there were... There were no other game developers, and it was just myself and, and, you know, my brother went to Harvard, and he would come back, you know, sort of during the summers and would work remotely. And then it was a few friends, uh, you know, at, at RPI and getting this thing going. There was no games program at RPI at the time. It's been a, it's been a long road, but you look at it now, and there's 300-some-odd game developers uh, in the region, about a dozen companies, you know, big, medium, and small, fledgling startups as well. And there's an opportunity to grow it into something much bigger. There's an opportunity to go from like 300 to 3,000 because there's all the right ingredients are there. You know, we're kind of coming up to a a strategic inflection point to be able to do that. When you look at New York State uh, in general, you've got like the the digital gaming hubs, the uh, RPI, RIT, and NYU Brooklyn all have amazing games programs. So you've got the students. Well, most of the talent that graduate from these programs, they go out of state to, to find jobs. Because that's where they they are, and there's a lot of potential to keep that talent, you know, within the state, within the region. It's it's by building a robust game cluster, and as you guys know, it's like, and we've been talking about it. There's so many different niches, uh, you know, of gaming. There's a, sort of an opportunity to really kind of create this healthy ecosystem, and and so you know, for um, for my brother and I, you know, as we realized to build a company. To create great games that people are going to love and enjoy, and as a developer, as a creative person, you know, to have, you know, a, a fulfilling, uh, you know, sort of career and and make that contribution, you need to build a smart business that's built to last. But for my brother and I now, it kind of goes beyond the mission of building a single company that's built to last. We want to build the region as a game cluster that's built to last, and that means helping other entrepreneurs and startups and, you know, other indie teams. It's by building the next great company in, in the region. And our vision for it is to be able to see a few big anchor studios. I mean, proud that Vicarious is the largest game developer in New York State, you know, right here in the capital region. But we need to build a few big anchor studios and uh, a number of medium-sized companies, a bunch of small ones and startups. And, and that pipeline coming out of the, uh, the universities having them be startup teams and, you know, build a, an accelerator program that kind of, you know, helps those guys, the the next generation of talent, you know, sort of realize their, their dreams. And I think if you have that with a healthy sort of freelancer network that's local, you're kind of insourcing that talent for when projects balloon up in scope and you need to bring in talent to make those games. That builds a really kind of vibrant, you know, ecosystem and, and, and economy. And when we've seen other Regions do that, you know, in, in like Texas, Quebec. It's come through the support of public policy with, uh, with a, um, a refundable tax credit that allows them to grow. And it's had huge impact in the economy. So we really think that there's an opportunity to kind of grow the creative economy in the, uh, in the largest, uh, you know, sort of growing entertainment sector in the world.
1: We know that when you start a company, any kind of company, retail, it could just be the mom and pop store, brand new, down on River Street. But what are some of the biggest differences? What do you have to look out for when starting a new video game company?
2: I I started with uh, with the, just the focus on the, the creative idea. You know, and our first game that we were making was called Synergist. It was a detective mystery game, and I just obsessed about the game and the story and, and the content. And you do need to do that. You do need to obsess over, over the, the, the creative work. But what I came to realize is that that's actually secondary. That's actually the result of obsessing over the, the talent uh, that you that you built, the team that you built and building the right kind of culture and environment. It's very relationship-oriented, you know, with with people and partners and, you know, to be successful. And it's about creating that kind of learning environment, the uh, environment where failure is celebrated and because that's how you learn, that's how you experiment, that's how you find breakthroughs. And it's it's building that. It's hard. And I feel like, you know, the uh, uh, creative success kind of, comes from that and then the financial success to be able to do it all over again comes from that creative success
1: what drives you what 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 makes you want that to be so successful like why why video games you probably could have done any number of other tech companies industries
2: man that's a hardball question (laughs) it's uh uh you know i think um in this last year, I kind of reflected back, you know, not, not being in my parents' basement, but in my own basement, you know, starting up again. And now we have an office in, you know, in downtown Troy. But uh, it, was a, it was a really, uh, there was a lot of introspection, you know, and a lot of the feelings I had when I was a was a kid. And what kind of captured me with, with games, I mean, I, I was always a, you know, a geek, you know, into all kinds of, you know, comic books and TV shows and you know movies and games and all that stuff. But for games, I kind of felt that um, it had the ability to do more. It was kind of it it really brought together like things that I love technology as well as art. It was a lot of creative problem solving. Games are like sort of the perfect multidisciplinary kind of field because you've got brilliant folks who are So the experts, whether they're in programming and engineering or physics, you know, math or other sciences, as well as the, you know, uh, artistic side, amazing painters and animators and and writers and musicians and stuff like that. And you kind of create that melting pot. So it's bringing people from all all walks of life and uh, with incredibly diverse thinking to create something that, that kind of comes alive, kind of creates a world and a story and characters that kind of immerse you and that's the potential that i saw back back in 1990 or so when i you know first started playing you know like pc games and it captured me in a in a way that i said this is the future of sort of entertainment and technology it was going to push technology forward it's going to push entertainment forward it was going to be creatively gratifying and stuff and so that was kind of it and i kind of never looked back and now i see like how game technology gaming and game technology can have a broader impact than just creating fun and uh, entertainment, uh, you know, the, the technology is pushing all kinds of other fields. You know, one of, m- one of my favorite companies is NVIDIA. I mean, all gamers know NVIDIA, right? And they're built on GPUs. And you look at how that technology is influencing artificial intelligence and self-driving cars and all kinds of things, things that uh, NVIDIA is doing uh, really well at, the, the technology has a broader impact and we're talking to companies that are doing really interesting things in medicine that have potential where game technology can have a transformative impact in medicine and and healthcare. And so there are all these sorts of uh you know avenues to explore and I think that I felt this when I was a kid and I'm and I'm even more strongly passionate now that games can change the world. And I guess that's what that's what kind of drives me, you know. It's it's a never-ending quest.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say some of the technology, I mean One thing I never thought, even though it's now defunct, that would have such an impact outside of gaming was the Kinect from the Xbox. I saw it mounted on, you know, drones before drones were really big. People would just fly around, you know, remote helicopters with them and they would auto be able to navigate down a hallway just knowing the boundaries and the distances and I just Just going off what you say, it impresses me how much technology actually affects everything else.
2: Yeah, you know, the most clever uses of Kinect that I saw, I think, was uh, when I was visiting uh, Media Lab at MIT and and, uh, some of the crazy rigs that they were using, you know, the Kinect for. And uh, it was really cool. And and what that actually, Kinect and before that, the Wiimote, I mean, the, the, the Wii Remote was transformative, right, for gaming. And it was the use of of the accelerometer sensor. And then Kinect obviously went to more advanced uh, sensors with depth sensors and so on. That really showed the potential of sensor technology for all kinds of new forms of interaction and it understanding the environment, the technology understanding the environment that it's in, and creating new forms of interfaces. So, you know, although... The connect may have come and gone, uh, you know. I think the the core technology that it's rooted in, you know, is is still present, and it's sort of the next generation of it is around the corner, and we're seeing that, you know, with VR, we're seeing that with AR, and things called inside-out tracking, which is understanding where you are in the environment as you're walking around. You know, you've got. Apple and Google have uh, released ARKit and ARCore, which allows you to do some level of augmented reality on your phone. And that's actually just using your phone camera with computer vision, along with the motion sensors that are on your phone, to be able to track and place objects and understand, you know, where it is in the environment. And so uh, that tech is coming back, and the uses of it is much, much broader. Games are a way to sort of create an accelerant for that technology to be in everybody's pockets and then you start seeing broader use of it in transformative ways how cool is that you know how cool is it when like you know you have a bunch of developers and stuff we get to make games and we get to make tech that then gets used in all these other ways
0: the future is now it certainly is. We're living it. Well, Karthik, thank you so much for uh, for joining us here and chatting. This has been a very, very insightful and and I have to say, uh, very proud of this conversation. Uh, being here in the capital region and talking a lot about uh, everything that you have uh, that you're envisioning for this area. Well, you know, thank you. It's
2: uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And you know, I'm really bullish. I mean, I think that there's uh, you know incredible talent here in the region. I go you know visit. Uh, you know, RPI and, and, and RIT, and you know, I see the students coming out of the programs, and you know, the amazing thing is, there's they don't have any boundaries, right? There's no preconceptions of what you can and can't do, and there just needs to be some additional support to be able to sort of unleash that. There's just so much value that's uh, that's just sort of waiting to be unlocked, and uh, you know, and I think if we can do that, we're going to really thrive, and and. You know, everybody benefits. It's not just uh, the gamers and game developers and stuff like that in the region. It has a, you know, sort of broad uh, economic, you know, impact. And, and I think if we can, you know, become like a East Coast destination, you know, for gaming and, and game-related technologies, you know, it, it is something to be extremely proud of, you know, as a community. So, uh, you know, my brother and I, would, we would like to do our little bit.
0: Well, best of luck to you and to uh, Valen Studios. Thank you. That was Kartik Bala, CEO of Velen Ventures and co-founder of video game
1: studio Velen Studios in Troy, New York. This has been Retcon, a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm your host, Rick Marshall. And I'm your producer, Patrick Garrett. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your podcast app of choice. It lets us know that you're out there and want to hear more.